0: I cannot wait to see you. Linda Yvette Chavez was hustling hard, creating digital content, and deeply, secretly, wanting to write for television and film, which is funny because she went to film school. She was ready to give up on that dream when she was offered the chance to co-write a digital series. That show, Hentified, got so much buzz that she and her co-creator, Marvin Lemus, reworked it for TV and sold it to Netflix. Hentified focuses on three cousins who work together to keep their grandfather's Boyle Heights taco shop afloat. It is heartbreaking and hilarious, and like Linda, so smart and engaging that you'll want to watch it all in one sitting. Linda, this is our first interview during a pandemic, so thank you for being willing to do this remotely. This is a little strange for us, so I appreciate you being willing to give it a whirl.
1: Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, we have to keep going even in the midst of this. I've definitely done multiple interviews now during this pandemic, and this has been a very, been really interesting to hop on. And like, you know, the first question everyone wants to ask is like, hey, you doing okay are you doing? Um, how are you okay? holding up? Yeah, I am. I think those first few weeks were a little tough, probably for all of us to kind of comprehend and wrap our head around what's happening. It's a it's a new normal that we're
0: all adjusting mm. to. But how about you? How are you doing? I mean, I'm I'm isolated with kids, which is like a whole different thing. <laughs> and it gave me time to watch Hentified, which Yay. I loved. I truly loved. Let's start at the beginning of Hentified. Marvin, the show's creator, pitches the idea to Macro, which is this big production company. They like it. They tell him he needs to find someone to co-write it. He finds you through the film Independent, where you had just finished a fellowship. When the head of the fellowship approached you with the opportunity, what was your reaction?
1: It was a first-time like pitch that he brought to them. He had a small deck that he had presented to them, and they were like, awesome, like— your background's more in directing. Can you bring someone on to to co-write with you and develop this and and essentially create it with you? And I, you know, when he brought it to me, my first reaction was like, yeah, please. I had been trying to tell uh, Latino stories for so long, not finding a place for those stories that I had been wanting to tell Mm -hmm. so desperately. And I was ready to do something more meaningful and deeper and something that was true storytelling. And I liked his vision for like, what he wanted it to be. He was like, listen, I I want you here because like the voice, the thing that I read, the sample I had sent him, like, that's the voice I want for this project. I want it to feel like that. I want us to work together to bring what we both have to this. And like, I don't, whatever I have, whatever, throw that out. Like, we we need to tell the best story possible. And let's be artists. And I hadn't had the freedom to be mm. just an artist in years because I had been chasing numbers on the digital platforms that I was working with. And also just like, you know, the gentrification, hentification of it all for me was like so true to my life in that moment. Like being a young professional, having all my friends, all of us are, are children of immigrants. We all are first gen. All of, A lot of our parents came here and documented like we had grown up with that American dream being seeded in us so strongly. And so we were coming into that upward mobility, but then finding ourselves wondering as we moved into neighborhoods where we felt most comfortable and felt like home, like, cause I lived like in West Adams, this community in, in, um, LA that's predominantly Central American and, and Caribbean. And, and it was, it's people, people of color. And I felt comfortable there when I was going to grad school. I was like, this is where I want to live, but how am I contributing to the gentrification? Even though I'm a person of color, does it, does that include me? Am I also a part of the problem? And those are questions I was asking myself when he brought that to me. So when he brought it,
0: I was like ready to get into all of that. You and he did a lot of what you call trauma bonding. What did that look uh, like? Yeah,
1: yeah, trauma bonding. I know we say that a lot. He always says this. He's like, you know, I don't like to work. So at the beginning of every session, it was like, let's do some cheese for like 20 minutes. And like, you know, I will force myself to work. But if someone's like, let's do some Cheeseman. I'm like, all right. <laughs> like, because ultimately I don't really want to work. But like, I, I'm like, I want to get into it. So we would, you know, we would do our Cheeseman. A lot of times it was therapy sessions for both of us. We we're both very willing to be vulnerable. And I have a long history of doing therapy. So I was very ready to do it and talk and like talk about our lives and in that process, we got to the core of a lot of the themes and issues we wanted to explore with the series, the digital series that we then uh, carried into the into the TV series when we created that. But those core themes started in that first coffee shop on First Street in Boyle Heights called Primera Taza. It's not there anymore because of gentrification. It all came from like a lot of the things that we were experiencing, a lot of the the issues that we had been confronting as first-gen kids, as like young professionals of children of immigrants, everything that we were experiencing, we felt we wanted to put into the page. And also just relationships, like our relationships with our fathers, our mothers, our siblings, the way that love is it happens in our communities, the way that, that our mothers who work in factories are portrayed, like all those things were things that we had never really seen the way that we've really experienced them. Mm. And so we were so adamant about putting that complexity onto the page the complexity that I think a lot of people like about the series and are drawn to that you laugh but then you get hit with this like oh shit this is reality and this is real and for us that that tone is is our lives and I think it's the lives of our communities like we're we're always faced with a lot of difficult structural institutional isms right that are always obstacles that we're up against but at the end of the day, we got to survive. We got to laugh. It's like this pandemic right now, you know, like we're we're very well equipped for it because we grew up with like trauma after trauma after trauma and like learning how to cope with it and learning how to roll with the punches. And a lot of times that, that included comedy, you know, cracking jokes. And Marvin always says this and I agree with it. Like. You know, we both work around a ton of comedians with the funniest people. We know our own families, like our own moms, our own cousins, our siblings who like crack jokes like you're just like, stop roasting me, you know, Like all of that. It's coping mechanisms. And and I think that was the tone that we were trying to capture in the series as well, where it's like, yes, life is hard, but our, we're not all these like really sad, sepia-toned, like, you know, sad immigrants rolling through the dirt roads in a desert in Mexico. Like, we're... There's a complexity to who we are, and, and that's what we try to achieve with the
0: series. At the point at which you two partnered up and this opportunity came your way, you, it seems, were at a crossroads where you were sort of getting towards the end of your rope in terms of pursuing this specific dream.
1: Yeah, dang, you did your research. <laughs> Get on yeah, the Google. No. You got on the Googles. Um, My history is long before that. I went to film school. I went to USC for grad school. I had been writing for many years and trying to tell these stories for a long time. And I felt like every time I tried to find a way to tell these types of stories, things didn't really pan out there the way that I had wanted to.
0: Take me back one step, though. What happened between graduating from film school and... Like, why not go directly into film? What led you into then pursuing all of these digital opportunities?
1: Uh, well, the, the the step that skipped is actually many years of work. I, I worked in different areas. I worked, I did short films as a director. I worked for, on documentary. I worked for um, these Emmy award winning documentary filmmakers, and within um. Caracedo and, and Robert Behar, who taught me so much about producing. Um, and actually, a lot of the inspiration for Beatrice's character comes from that film called Made in L.A., which is about garment workers in Los Angeles. I'll be honest, like, writing is what I knew I wanted to do first and foremost, and it's the one thing that I kept avoiding because I, I kept doing all the other— and this is something I tell people, like, if you find yourself in an industry doing all the jobs around the job you really want to do, like, check in on that because— that means something. It means like you're avoiding, there's some sort of fear around you not doing the thing you really want to do. What was the but fear? Saying, for me, not being good enough, not being able to achieve um, the dream, not, not thinking that I was good enough writer, that I could do a revision, that I could get it done, that I could deliver, like all these things that mm-hmm. I think are insecurities that have come from many, many traumas that I've worked through in therapy. And the thing with this particular moment for me... I said this is it like you have to dedicate yourself to the thing that you want to do which is writing. It's now or never. You can't give up on this industry because the reality is you haven't really tried in the one area that you know you want it and that you know you could do it. So I said if if I can't make this happen within a couple years then then that's it. Then you can you can move on with your life and say I did everything I could and it just didn't work out for me. But you gotta give it everything, Linda, is what I told myself. So you gotta give it, you gotta leave this feeling like I gave it everything I could and I'm, I'm at peace. Cause I always ask myself, how will you feel at the end of your life if, if you didn't do that? So I gave it my all. <laughs> I gave it everything. And within a few months, I got hentified and, and right away within a, those two years, we were pitching our TV show and, and I had put out Around that time, um my family and I were very cute. We're a very cute little immigrant family, Mexican family, but we would do these dream meetings where we would talk about our dreams and like what we wanted to to achieve and, and we would like, you know, manifest or talk about things we wanted. And my sister kept saying she wanted to be a mother and I kept saying I I want to be I want to create my own TV show. And and I didn't know how it was going to happen because I knew I wasn't going through it the traditional way in television. I knew there was a traditional way. I had so much experience managing and my skill level was not at a staff writer level. Like I knew that I, my writing, I knew that I could do way more than that. And I didn't want to come into television at that level because I had so much experience in different areas and skill sets that transferred. So I was like, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but this is what I want to do. And within, yeah, two years I had sold, me and Marvin had sold the show to Netflix and and now about a year later, a year and a half later, we, we just released it. And I gave it my all. <laughs> so I can't say, you know, it, it came to really prove to me that, like, the truth is when you feel a calling, you're meant to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's just really the only thing between you and that calling is what you choose to give it. Like, if you choose to go after it, like, because there was m- countless obstacles, but at the end of the day, you'll get there if that's that's truly what you want.
0: Is there something that's getting in the way of you living the life you want, of you being happy? In my own life, I have found that talking with a professional can make a big difference, but sometimes the logistics, finding the right person, the time to connect, gets in the way. BetterHelp Online Counseling assesses your needs and matches you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can get help on your own time, in your own space. In fact, you can start communicating in under 24 hours. You can schedule secure weekly video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist anytime. BetterHelp's licensed professional counselors specialize in everything from grief and trauma to relationships and self-esteem. BetterHelp is committed to helping you find the perfect fit so it's easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. Plus, it's more affordable than offline counseling. I want you to start living a happier life today. As an LTL listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com Latina. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com Latina. I feel like your pitch experience has become lore where it's like you go into 10 different pitch meetings, you have six different networks that say yes to it, which are incredible odds. How did you refine that pitch and how did you practice it such that you were then just nailing it in the room?
1: Oh my gosh, that was such a journey. So soon after the trailer for the digital series dropped because the digital series never fully dropped, um, networks were calling... And we're asking like, so is this a TV series? And they were like, oh sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know Marvin called me and was like, yo girl, we're we let's come up with a pitch for a TV series. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And in the moment they're like, do something in two weeks. I remember telling Marvin like two weeks. That sounds insane. I was like, we need more than two weeks to develop a television pitch. And I hadn't done television yet, but I'd done other type of pitches like for. For other, for digital content, I'd pitched to tons of companies. And so I was like two weeks to do a TV pitch. I was like, huh, that's, that's, uh, that's dubious. But, um, we, anyway, I was right <laughs> because then, you know, we, as the work went on and then they brought on, America brought on Terry Weinberg, who has worked on series like The Office and Ugly Betty. And, um, as we all work together, um, we just you know we discovered that the process was actually a 5 month process and i don't know that this is true of every single um person when they're developing a pitch but we definitely busted our butts for 5 months you know writing and rewriting and redeveloping this pitch until we knew it like inside and out in, in, in inside and outside forwards and backwards like any question you wanted to ask cuz we had the answer we revised and repeated and found exactly the way to tell it and soon after that we took the digital series to premiere at Sundance and they were like, OK, we're going to go out of pitch the minute you guys get back. And we were like, oh, shit. OK, let's do it. So we got back and, and got right into it. But it took five months of really prepping that pitch and finding exactly what it was going to be. And having not only, I mean, we had everything scripted down to the jokes, but even then, like we would get together after every pitch day and rethink everything and add a new joke so that even our producers would laugh because they hadn't heard it before because we wanted to stay fresh. And we did a lot of work to make sure that it always was being refined and anything we learned or any questions asked during a pitch, like we came back to the pitch and said, okay, they asked this, how do we add it in? How do we have the answer? Like It was a constant, like, work and refinement. And, yeah, two, three weeks later, we had pitched to 10 networks and we had six offers. So we actually did not, like, know that that was, like, so crazy. Mm. Like, we had no idea how it's rare to, like, people are usually hoping for one, maybe two, maybe three networks to make an offer on their work. So for us to have gotten that many offers, like, we just, I mean, there was a lot of things that we were naive about because we hadn't specifically worked in that part of television. And it was wild. It it was very much like, it's this weird combination of like, we worked our asses off. It also feels like a fairy tale, like in a lot of ways, like a, like a rags to riches type of like tale where we just went from these, these people who probably should have had all the odds against us. But we, I don't know. We always felt like if we work hard, we'll get to it. And maybe that's our, immigrant work ethic coming through our Mexican parents who like taught in Guatemala and for Marvin parents who taught us, like, if you work hard and you just keep going, like, you're going to get it. Like you're going to get there. And, and that's how we showed up to everything every single day throughout this whole process. Just like we couldn't give up on this thing that we love so much. It's very similar to our parents and <laughs> they kept working and working because they couldn't give up on, on us, you know, as us as their children to, to give us everything
0: Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. Hey, today I want to tell you about a new podcast I am loving. It's called Dear Young Rocker. Remember the 14-year-old version of you? Awkward, insecure, the weirdo in you, fiercely independent but longing to connect? In this narrative podcast, join Hell's Chelsea Urson as she relives her teen years, struggling to feel cool enough to exist and finding a home in music. Each episode dives deep into teen Chelsea's journal entries as she navigates school, family, relationships, and joining her first band. And occasionally, adult Chelsea chimes in with advice for her younger self. At the same time that it offers a poignant, funny look at what being a teenager is like, Dear Young Rocker also creates honest dialogue around the issues of body image, gender power dynamics, and mental health. And it shines a spotlight on the way those are magnified during our teen years. You have said that growing up, you wanted to save your family. Why did you think that they needed saving?
1: Oh, dang, girl, you're asking some deep-ass I, I, questions. I <laughs> want to know about
0: you. I want this yeah, to be like one of those marquee interviews so that when you're an even bigger star, people come back to it and be like, oh, this is like, is this big is at the real-real right here.
1: <laughs> Um, Like, listen, like, you know, we always talk about like I grew up low income. I grew up with my, um, you know, my parents have always been hardworking. But, you know, when we first had our first home, I remember, you know, we didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. We got by with family supporting each other. Like we were all low income. We were all struggling. And I remember, you know, my grandmother getting food stamps and, you know, the government cheese, like all low-income kids joke about the government cheese. And for me and my mom putting water into the milk and into the shampoo and conditioner to make it last like— few weeks more or a month more because we couldn't afford to get more or, you know, the age old joke of like, oh, beans again, frijoles, frijoles otra vez, like every day, frijoles, every day frijoles, like it's when you grow up low income, so much around you reminds you that you are. And like specifically for me was just like not having, you know, one outfit, two outfits a year for school like that, that we got that was new. And, like, maybe every two years a new or every year a new pair of sneakers and not, like, a nice pair of sneakers, like, the stuff that, like, people would make fun of and me always dreaming about, like, I wish I had some Nikes, like, that would be dope, you know, like, seeing the kids with Nikes was always really cool. And like I said, you know, we were low income in like a a little bit of a mixed income community. So there were kids, some kids in my school who did have those things, not a lot, but there was some kids who did. Having that and seeing my parents struggle financially, they always made it work. They always worked hard and made it work. But, you know, that strain of that financial strain is always with you from a very early age because you you feel it, you see it, you see how you have less than. So I think for a lot of kids who grow up low income, especially if you're a child of immigrants, like, you grow up with the sense of, like, well, it's so hard for us. We're here for the American dream, so I'm going to bust my butt, and I'm going to get that dream, and I'm going to save everybody. Like, we're all getting out of this together. I'm going to make so much money that I'm going to get a mansion, and we're all going to live in that mansion. And I remember my dad used to drive us to Beverly Hills, and um, he would point to the different houses, and he would say, like, Mijay, that's where you're going to live. Mijal, that's where you're going to live. Like, he was always kind of, like— putting into our heads like both of my parents like this is this is where you belong you you can be there and i want you to dream for that they had that attitude even sitting at dinner tables and telling us like, you're gonna go to college like that was enough for me to say okay i'm gonna go to college
0: well not only that you had a mother who was telling you i think you're gonna be a writer like yeah
1: girl you really you read everything that is <laughs> yeah she did that's rare Yeah, no, I remember when I was little, I was like the little adult who was like, so when I grow up, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to make lots of money. And my mom and my dad were like, "Mm, I don't know, man, like you're really good. I think you're going to be a writer because I would write poetry and short stories and like little books when I was little. And I read like I devoured books, like devoured when I say like. I was a bookworm like girl I was at the, the library's at the street from here the the public one I just lived there like I every week was like what's the new topic that I'm obsessed with and it was everything from hamsters to ice hockey like I wanted to learn everything um and I would read a lot of books a lot of fiction you know like Narnia like all the things all the things um and so I would write a lot cuz I love stories and I love storytelling and and to me it never seemed like a career though it was like that's something I do for fun and I love moving people with it. Like, I used to love writing poems that would make people cry. <laughs> I just, like, loved it. I just loved that I could write something that moved someone. Like, and it was usually, like, my parents or my my siblings or my, you know, aunts and uncle or my aunts and my grandma. But um, there was something about it that I felt within me that felt so good and so right to be able to move someone with my work. But I didn't know that I could make a career out of it. So, you know, my parents being like, I think you're going to be a writer to me was like, first of all. Y'all are broke for a reason. No, you can't make money <laughs> being a writer. Like, I was like that kid who was like, what? You're crazy. Like, we, this is this is a saying in Spanish, right? Por eso estamos como estamos. It's like, well, por eso estamos como estamos. Like, I'm going to go be a lawyer and I'm going to make money. But the minute I, I went to college, I mean, the first year was really tough. But then I took this class with um, Harry Elam at Stanford, who introduced me to Shereen Moraga, who's this uh, queer Chicana playwright who was a feminist and played a huge role in the Chicano, Chicano rights movement with her work. And she, um, the first thing I read of hers was giving up the ghost. And I remember thinking, oh, like I saw her writing about her community. It was like this farm worker community. And of course, like our communities are very similar. Obviously, like even my, you know, I have family who've done farm work and all that. It it was my people essentially. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a second, hold up. You can write about your people and like make a career. Well, first of all, you can write about your people because everything I'd read read up until that point for the most part was white people. Secondly, you can make money doing that. Like it all just like for me was like this moment of like it was just a big moment to be like, wow, I can do that.
0: I remember the first time I read um, this bridge called my back, and I was like, oh yeah, I was like, oh I. I grew up in a Latino community and it didn't, it almost didn't occur to me that it was a minority experience. And I remember reading that and being like, oh, this is mm. a radical act. Like this is, yeah." like I was so in my own little world of not realizing how radical it was to tell your story and to own your story for those women.
1: Yeah, it's so radical. It's crazy. And this is, again, goes back to like, if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? Like that, if Cherie hadn't, pursued her passion and her love and i'm sure there's things people who inspired her to do the same i wouldn't be here i needed her work i needed her to do her work so that i could exist in the way that i'm existing now that is like a full circle wild moment for me because like that's what started my journey you know like seeing something and being like what the hell like i can do this like it's so vital and so important. And one of the big reasons why I never gave, gave up on this show, you know, it's it was a hard road. It was a very, very hard road um, to make this. And and one of the things that really brought me to show up to it fully was knowing knowing that it was going to make such a huge difference mm. to so many people and would create more creators. And we need them. You know, we need these, these folks to show up every day to create their art and... Um, And yeah, so I'm grateful to my parents who saw me as a writer, and I'm grateful to Sheree for allowing me to fully um, take in what I know now, very, very viscerally know now that it's my calling to do. Like those early early moments of writing poetry and telling stories and storytelling and all that, that was just, you know, the universe telling me, yo, this is who you are. This is what you're going to do. This is your life. But it took these moments to really embrace that and say, no, 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 this really is your calling now. Own it and step into it and empower yourself to push it through.
0: So much of the ethos of the show is about what you are willing to sacrifice in order to survive. Mm -hmm. What have you sacrificed in order to get to this point? What
1: have I sacrificed to get to this point? Oof. Heavy, deep. Okay, I'm going to be real. (laughs) I think for me, like a big sacrifice has been I don't have a traditional life that every Mexican daughter would have, which is like to have a husband and, and kids. And when I say kids, usually a bunch and to be able to be available for every weekend, like family barbecue and every like get together and every birthday party, which as Latinos, as we know, like. That's a thing. Like, we all, all the primos, everybody shows up to every week, Every and there's 50 parties for so-and-so's kid's birthday, so-and-so's kid's quinceañera, the baptism, the this, the that. And that's what I grew up with. I grew up with a very tight-knit, like, you always show up for each other, which is such such a part of the series, right? Very much, a lot of Anna's stuff is based on me. But, like, how do you sacrifice that part to go after your dream? For me, it was definitely, like, um sacrificing that part of it and also sacrificing that traditional timeline of marriage and children. I mean, first of all, do you want it or not, right? And that for me was a struggle (laughs) for a long time because I have a full-blown career that demands a lot. Like for me to be able to show up to this dream every day, meant that I had to invest in me and and make this time for me because I and most of the time during this process like I barely could keep myself together I can't even imagine like children or a family or a husband or whatever it may be um, and I know you're doing it, which is crazy. Like every person I meet who is doing it, anyone who is at my level in terms of a creative or EP, I, I'm always like Gloria. Like, for example, Gloria Calderon-Kellet, who is the creator of One Day at a Time, is a mentor of ours and a friend. And I every time I meet with her and I see her all the time, I'm like, how are you doing it? How do you do, tell me all your secrets? Like, how are you raising children, and have a husband, all the things? She's she's down to like her showing me her calendar. But I'm still like, oh, I think it just has to happen to figure it out. But but. I felt like I had to sacrifice that to make this happen in a way that would keep me still sane because I am a huge advocate for mental health and and I'm a huge, you know, I've dealt with a lot of mental health issues in, over the years and I'm very aware of what I can handle and what I cannot. And in this time... To keep myself healthy and strong. It was like, this is what I can handle. And truthfully, this is more important to me more than anything in my dream. Um, so that was, I think that was a sacrifice that was always like difficult to, um, process. But, um, you have but here we are, you know, like, yeah. I think some sacrifices are worth it. <laughs> yeah. And also that, there's also that. But, you know, when you hear again, being Latinas, that clock starts ticking for your family when you're like 20 four like it doesn't like 21 already they're like so where are the kids like where's the marriage what's happening like like that clock is like ticking from the the get-go so it's a very real pressure that still shows up for us consistently and so you know we're fighting against that too being able to tell people like listen first of all do I want it? secondly like wait like I have to do this first and I don't think that's a traditional thing in our communities what what do you want to do next What do I want to do next? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, I work, I'm, so I have TV, but I also have have work in the feature space. So I actually have a few really exciting big projects that will hopefully be coming out getting made in the the next year or so. Um, But beyond that, I want to direct. So that feature that I talked about earlier that was about my grandmother is a feature that I have in the Sundance Momentum Fellowship right now, and they're helping me. That fellowship is really for mid-level folks like at this point in their careers who need more support to keep launching. But what I asked of them was to support me in, in making this feature film and directing it. So for me, what's next is trying to direct that film. Thank you for your extreme patience with us. Thank you for all your amazing, incredible questions. Like, it's very deep.
0: Thank you, as always, for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua-Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Cedric Wilson is our sound designer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. Manuela Badoya is our intern. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, please leave a review. It is one of the quickest and easiest ways to help us grow as a community. see you.